Well, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met. Uh, thanks for being with us. I want to say hi to those of you online as well. Um, there's always more of you online than I think there are whenever I'm like, well, there's a lot of people online. Uh, I thought I'd start. I haven't done this for a while. It did not get a rousing amount of laughter, so I anticipate none. Second service. But I read it. It's from, it, it'll work for my sermon. I read it it's on the Babylon Bee, if you've ever been to the Babylon Bee. Fake news you can trust. Um, so this is Norman, Oklahoma. According to local child Maxwell Parker, who spoke with reporters Wednesday, the answer to any question the Sunday school teacher asks is most likely Jesus. That's already more laughter than I got for service. So I already love you guys. Parker revealed, you can start waving your hand around before she's even done asking. If you just say Jesus, you've got like a 95% chance of being correct, no matter what the question is. You'll probably even get a good job from the teacher and maybe even a treat from the surprise box as well. He continued, once in a while they try to trick you and the answer is actually Moses. So you've got to learn to read the teacher. They usually have all kinds of tells when they're trying to pull one over on the class, but it's never anything but Jesus or Moses, the young student confirmed. At publishing time, Parker was unable to recall any of the actual questions he had ever been asked in Sunday school, nor lessons he had been taught, noting that he just blurts out Jesus as soon as he realizes a question is being asked. There you go. Babylon B. But I thought it was appropriate because we're wrapping up Deuteronomy and we're going to talk about Moses, the end of Moses' life. We're going to talk a lot about Moses, but we're Christians and so we're still going to find our way to talk about Jesus. I was thinking, I hope our students out in children's worship right now are paying attention to the lesson and the questions being asked. I'm sure your kids are. But if 95% of the answers are Jesus, I think we're doing just fine as a church. That's all I'm going to say. There's nothing wrong with that. We gather because of Jesus. And what we've been doing in this series is trying to, and I think we've accomplished this to a degree, trying to learn the book of Deuteronomy. Um, It's not a book that I spent a lot of time in before, and I've learned even today what I'm going to preach. I wouldn't have preached two months ago. I just, I've learned a lot in the last two weeks. But uh, even talking to most of you, like, I've never read Deuteronomy. This is cool. I had no idea. I always skip over it. I already read it in Exodus and Leviticus. Why would I read it again? Well, now you know why. (laughs) Um, so we've tried to learn the book. It's an important book, but we've also, and I feel like we're still, I feel like I'm learning to do this in new and exciting ways. As Corey was mentioning during worship when she prayed, this whole book, this whole story is about Jesus. There's a longing that is placed within us to be near God as we'll talk about, to be in relationship with the God, the source of all life. And Jesus is the answer to all of our questions. He's the solution to all of our problems. He's the satisfaction of all of our desires and the fulfillment of all of our needs. He's everything. Thanks, Cindy. So one of the reasons why we have gone through Deuteronomy the way we've gone through Deuteronomy is because we want to read the Bible as Christians And there's all these exciting stories, and we want to understand them for their own right, but let's get to Jesus, because he's where our salvation is found. And one of the things I want you to be paying attention for, though I hope I'm clear enough that you're not like missing it, but but the life of Moses gives us a few categories. I mean, if you're just following along in the narrative, and you're wondering, okay, we've been exiled from Eden... And we've been banished from this paradisal place. How do we get back to Eden? And the the narrative's unfolding of all the things that God is doing. Not we're doing. All the things God is doing to get us back. 
That's one of the things I want you to hear this morning. I want you to see how relentless God is in his pursuit of you and me. He's, he's just, he's after us all the time, just trying to bring us home. And the life of Moses is actually going to give some very important categories or patterns of ways of thinking that, that we're, we're getting introduced to the way God is going to bring us back home to Eden. But just but as we've talked about in some of the series, like we get hints and riddles. It's not crystal clear, but it's crystal clear to us because we know Jesus. But we want to read it and just kind of enter into the story and see how much of like the life of Moses is setting the stage for what's going to come with Jesus. Stuff, honestly, I, I don't know that I'd really noticed much before two weeks ago. And I was thinking, if you've been a part of Crossview for a few months, we kind of even began this theme before Christmas. We were going through Genesis and looking for Jesus in the book of Genesis. And we looked at Joseph's life, which is phenomenal. Uh, but part of Joseph's life is the amount of suffering he needs to endure. He's humbled before he's exalted. And Moses, as you're, as you're following this grand narrative of Scripture now, Moses is kind of going to step into this suffering role, this almost suffering servant, if you will. <laughs> you know, Isaiah's going to grab that in Isaiah 53, and then the gospel writers are just going to run, especially Matthew, run with that. But Moses is going to take this theme of a suffering servant, if you will, and add to it and give clarity to, to what is redemptive, if you will, about the suffering that these servants of God are going to go through. So let's jump into the text. It's Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's the end of the book, 12 verses. I'll read through it, and then we're going to go on a little journey with Moses, and lo and behold, we'll end up with Jesus. Verse 1, then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab, and he's, he's 120 years old, you'll find out in a few verses, and he climbed Pisgah Peak. He's doing pretty good, right? It's across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land. Maybe you can picture this if you've ever looked at a map from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, all the land of Judah extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley with Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zor. And then verse 4, this is really what we're going to launch out of. This is what I leaned into with the life of Moses that I, I want to help you understand so you see how this becomes a pattern for Jesus. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. This is the promised land. I have now allowed you to see it, Moses, with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. So that's what we're going to walk into. Why? can't Moses enter the land? And in some ways, we're going to see like there's similarities. There's a similarity. Jesus, Moses is going to die outside the promised land, and a few of the New Testament authors are going to lean into the fact that Jesus dies outside of the city of Jerusalem. There's some, again, these patterns and themes that flow through the story. Verse 5, Moses, the servant of the Lord, he's the first one really called my servant by the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said. Verse 6 is an interesting verse. It gives us a little bit of context as to what's kind of going on in terms of Scripture coming together. The, the narrator says, the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab, but to this day no one knows the exact place. In other words, as I've been saying as we go through this, most of Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons that Moses himself gave to the people before they entered the promised land. However, um, we didn't have the Bible as we have it now when Moses finished those sermons. And so what we have here is a narrator, 
an editor at some point down the road as Israel's been using this for worship and you've got all these prophets and all these different authors and they're putting all these books together to become what we know as the Old Testament. This narrator is down the road and he's looking back and he's like, it's been so long since Moses died, we don't even know where his grave is anymore. It's been a long time. Verse 7, as I said, and this is interesting, again, this is a contrast with what we would say of Jesus. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyesight was clear and he was as strong as ever. Some of you are like, what was he eating? 120 as strong as ever. But even contrast that now with Jesus, because, I mean, Jesus is so much more than Moses. (laughs) But Jesus isn't going to end as strong as ever, right? He's going to end crucified and beaten. And we'll talk about this on Good Friday in a very violent death as the ultimate servant, suffering servant. Verse 8, the people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. So Moses hands the baton to Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua's good. He comes along, he leads. But the narrator, looking back, right, looking back even with Joshua, there's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses. But even, I mean, the end of the Torah, these first five books you're reading through, but you're, you're just, it's building into you this desire, will there ever be someone greater than Moses? <laughs> I mean, certainly as this was coming, the narrative, and there's never been one like whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land with mighty power. Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. So there you go. That's how the book of Deuteronomy ends. Uh, Moses is dying outside of the land. There's kind of a celebration of who he was. There's been no one like him since him by the time the narrator's writing this. But as I said, I want to lead into this idea of Moses as as a suffering servant. Here's a guy who really gave his life to lead these people, and you know, you know, you know he wanted to go into the promised land. He's not allowed. So let's let's lean into this. What's going on here? First, we'll start with the fact that Moses wasn't perfect, and there's a sense that he knows this. So just a page before in my Bible, chapter 32, a little bit before this, verse 48, that same day the Lord said to Moses, go to Moab, to the mountains. He's going to explain what we just read, east of the river, Climb Mount Nebo, which is across from Jericho. Look out across the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land I'm giving to the people of Israel as their special possession. And he says, you will die there. You will die there on the mountain. You will join your ancestors just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Or and joined his ancestors. Verse 51, for both of you betrayed me, God says, with the Israelites at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, and the wilderness of Zin. You failed, you sinned, you failed to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel there. So you will see the land from a distance, but you may not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So, so we know Moses wasn't perfect, and there is a sense that he's dying outside of the land because of something he's done. It's a consequence of his own sin. But if you've been reading through Deuteronomy from the beginning, you know that that's not the way that Moses tells the story. <laughs> Now, here's just three, maybe the three most accessible verses. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, the Lord was also angry with me because of you, he said. (laughs) Or chapter 3, the Lord was angry with me because of you. 
or chapter 4, but the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he vowed that I would not cross the Jordan River into the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your special possession. So in Moses' mind, there is a very real sense, and we'll even talk about what happened, why Moses is saying this. You guys did your thing down while I was up on the mountain, and I'm paying the price for it. I'm carrying your burden, your sin. I'm the, I can't go into the promised land because of the people that I represent. That's what Moses is saying. It's not just complaints or blaming. This is very real. Moses, in many ways, kind of pays the price for the people. So let's lean into this narrative a little bit. We'll go, we'll just look at a couple very, very, very famous, we won't do the whole story, right? But just a few very famous chapters. Exodus chapter 20 is where you get the Ten Commandments. And right after the Ten Commandments, this is what it says. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. So this is one of those things I said a few minutes ago that I want, to, I want you to hear echoing through this. Um, God is drawing near to be with his people because that's the heart of God. And so what you have is this picture of heaven coming down to earth to dwell among his people. And so you can, however you want to imagine this glory cloud of fire descending upon Mount Sinai. And as you're reading through the narrative, you even kind of get the picture that God is like wanting the people to just, they just, they want to be together. But the people are a little bit afraid of this thing. And there's reasons why. It's going to go beyond our sermon this morning. But, but they're a little afraid. And so they say to Moses in verse 19, you speak to us and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. So Moses says, all right. It's kind of this, I think, a sad moment in the narrative because it's just a chapter before we are told that Israel is meant to be a kingdom of priests, and they're going to become a kingdom with priests. Like they, this is an interesting thing to watch play out. No, Moses, you be the intermediary. You be the intercessor. You be the advocate. Moses says, all right, don't be afraid. God has come in this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning, and the people stood at a distance and Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. So Moses, and, and I want you to, because this is really, I think, what, what's happening in the narrative. It's almost as if Moses is just like right on the outside of re-entering Eden, right? If you know the story of Adam and Eve and their failure in eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there are these cherubim placed at the door or the gate of the garden, and there's this fiery, this fiery sword. This wall of fire. And so now you've got this wall of fire that is the presence of God, that is heaven come down to earth, and Moses is on the outside about to go back in. It's kind of this exciting moment, and so Moses has to wait six days, and then on the seventh day, which is good biblical language, he is allowed to enter in. And this is important for you to see, he enters into the very presence of God himself. This fiery cloud up on Mount Sinai, and he's kind of this place of heaven and earth come together. But here's the problem. While Moses is in the presence of God as an intermediary, an intercessor, an advocate for the people, the people are down making a golden calf. 
And if you're reading through the narrative, this really is in the same way that Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is their fall, their exile from Eden. The making of the golden calf and the worshiping and the revelry and everything around it is Israel's fall narrative. It's, it's, God is trying to bring them back in. And this is, I mean, you just keep reading through the Old Testament is what happens. God does something to draw near his people and they just keep running away. <laughs> And it's infuriating if you're reading through the book. And that's just how it plays. These people just never get it. But Moses, as you can see, becomes their intermediary, their intercessor. Now, if you've never read through Exodus 32 to 34, it really is one of these like beautiful, you should read it at some point. It's this beautiful narrative that John the Apostle is going to pick up quite a bit in the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 1. But Exodus 32 to 34, I highly recommend it. Moses basically five times is going to be interceding for the people for what they did while he was up on the mountain. He's interceding with God. And we're learning about God and how in the midst of our own darkness and wickedness and sin, how do we draw near to a holy God who has no darkness in him, right? So as we're reading through Exodus and we're learning, we're just learning about this God, in chapter 32, verse 31 of his intercessions, Moses, verse 30 reads this way, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. Again, so translation, I have a little asterisk in my Bible and I drop down to the bottom and it actually literally says make atonement. It's good to talk about the atonement during the season of Lent. Moses says, perhaps I will be able to make atonement for your sin. So Moses returns to the Lord. He says, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. But now if you will only forgive their sin." There's this question, even this wondering, and, and I'll talk about Moses isn't sure. Moses is still getting to know this God. <laughs> Will you forgive their sins? Because Moses is kind of, he's kind of wrestling with, with two things that he knows, but this is maybe about as much as he knows right now in the narrative. He know, well, he knows, he knows God's powerful enough to, to free them from the tyranny and oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. And, 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 and God's generous enough to provide for them in their wilderness wanderings, or I guess he's learning that as this unfolds, but he also knows that these people are horribly wicked and, and worthy probably of judgment. <laughs> and he also knows, and this is why I say mature Christians learn how to hold things together in tension. He knows that God is just and he's going to do what's just, but God has also made promises to redeem and restore these people. <laughs> and so Moses is kind of curious, what is this God going to do? How is this going to play out? Will he forgive? And he even finishes this verse by saying, if not, if you won't forgive, this is what I mean about just even the beginning of a pattern, drawing near to God, needing a substitute. <laughs> Moses says, if not, then erase my name for the from the record you've written. Let me take their place. So again, as frustrated as Moses is with the people, he also has just loved them and led them and Take my, I'll atone for them. I'll pay their price for them is what he's saying. Uh, just let's, let's make this thing right, God. We'll talk a little bit more about atonement as we go. So, so this is what Moses is wrestling with. And one of the authors I was reading 
I think said it this way. I thought this was helpful. It may be that readers, especially modern Christian readers of Exodus, take rather for granted God's willingness to forgive. We read the story with hindsight. We know of a God's abundant mercy from the rest of the biblical story, but, but Moses doesn't know about this. So when, when he tries to persuade God not to destroy the people, he can appeal to God's promises to the patriarchs and ask God to keep his word, which has happened a few verses earlier. But at this point, Moses cannot say, I know that you are merciful and forgiving because he doesn't know that yet. So when, and probably as it must have seemed to Moses, God does relent and forgives the people and pledges to still accompany them to the promised land, again, just read through Exodus 34, Moses finds himself wanting to know more about this God who acts in such an extraordinary way, (laughs) which is, I think, one of the great moments. And again, John, John will pick up on this in John chapter one, but Moses, who's already been in the glory cloud of fire, knows that there's more to this God than he's aware of. And he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And it's when God reveals, the, I think the most quoted thing in the Old Testament, God reveals, self-reveals his name. I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. And now, now Moses is learning about who this God is. It's pretty cool. Well, one more thing here in Exodus, and then we'll start to talk a little bit more about atonement and move to Jesus. But one of the other details that I never really put together, I've, I've read this, I've noticed this, but I never made, I think, what, what, the, what the logical conclusions are from the narrative. And I think what the narrator is trying to help you see, Moses has been in the glory cloud up on top of Mount Sinai. So you know he can go in. <laughs> But something happened since he was in the glory cloud, the golden calf happened. And so now these people are a mess. What God wants to do, again, is not abandon the people. We might read that, of course, God, you should abandon these people. They're a mess. Well, God doesn't do that. He is faithful to his promises. I hope you hear that even if you're going through a hard time. God is faithful to his promises, and he does not abandon his people. And so he now brings his glory into the tabernacle, this tent that will dwell in the midst of these sinful people. But because these people are such a wreck, look at what happens at the end of Exodus. The glory cloud, verse 34, chapter 40, the glory cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord that was on Mount Sinai now fills the tabernacle. But look at what verse 35 says. But Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wait a minute. Moses was just in the glory. Yes, but the golden calf happened and that's the fall narrative for Israel. And now that God, he wants to be with his people, but there's such a mess. Now Moses can't go in which I know Leviticus isn't the most exciting book ever, but if you keep reading into Leviticus, what God is going to do is make it another way a way for his people to dwell in his presence. And this idea of atonement is going to be central to what you read if you do journey through the ever-exciting book of Leviticus. It is ever-exciting. But I want to talk a little bit about this atonement. Moses is the one who is introducing this idea, and we're we're getting a, a, a first taste, a first touch of this through his narrative, but it is going to come to complete... Uh, fruition, completion, ultimate goal, destiny in the person of Jesus. 
And what I'm trying to do as we journey through this is to connect atonement to the narrative so it's not some abstract theological concept. It's a way of talking about what God has done so that he can draw near to us. So I'm going to turn to John. I mentioned what he says in John chapter 1. He really does. I mean, even in John 1, he will talk about how, how uh, the, the, the word has, has dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. I mean, he's just picking up on this, this Moses story throughout much of his writing. But he's going to begin in 1 John chapter 1 saying this, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. And now he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who's always been, whom we have heard and seen. We've seen him, we've heard him, we, we saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is, I love this, life itself. Jesus is, this one who is life itself was revealed to us and we've seen him, everybody, we've seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. Not just life, the beginning, but it's eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have, and I love this, so that you may have fellowship with us. And what does it mean to have fellowship with us? Well, our fellowship is with the Father, with God, with with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. And I'll pause there. Even as I was reading that this week and preparing for this morning, reading about fellowship with God. I, just, I was praying through things, and the Spirit of God just kind of took me back in my memory. I don't know what your story is, but I, I grew up going to church, but I never really understood why what I experienced Sunday morning mattered for the rest of my week. And I won't go into full detail, but I kind of tanked my freshman year of college, and I was a little bit lost and meandering, and I started going to a college group of Christians on our campus at the college that I went to, because uh, I was looking for something, not God per se, I just was, I was looking for something different. And I had gone to church, and I had some basketball friends going, so I just went. And I encounter these people who are talking about Jesus with all kinds of excitement that was a little, I didn't, just didn't fully understand But as I engaged with them and asked them questions, they were constantly talking about a relationship with Jesus. And I had no idea what they meant. I I mean, at the time, no, what do you mean a relationship with, with God? Yeah, you can have a relationship with God. And I got really interested. I mean, if this God is the source of life itself and I can and I can know him, and I can talk to him, and he will listen to me, and and he'll be with me. I want to know something about that. If you're here this morning, and even as I say that, you're like, I don't know what it means. Well, hang out with us for a while. Walk with us as we walk with Jesus. You can know the God of all creation. You can call him friend. How do you do that, you might say? Well, let's just keep reading. John's going to give us a pretty good pathway here, and it's going to circle around this idea of atonement. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. This is what I said a little bit ago. There's no darkness in God. There is darkness in you and me. God wants to be in fellowship and relationship with us. And part of the dilemma that then stands before God is how does he squash the darkness out of us without squashing us too? How does he rid the world of the evil that is within us without ridding the world of us, too? 
which is the beauty of salvation and what God does through Jesus. Verse 4, so we are saying if we say, so we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, listen to this, his son cleanses us from all sin. That's part of what happens with atonement. God cleanses, he purifies. He, it's like the ultimate laundry detergent that just really, really cleans. We'll come back to that in a few seconds here. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins, so you're wondering, how do I begin? Well, you begin by confessing your sins to God, to Jesus, because he's faithful and just. And what will happen? You might be afraid. What do I do if I confess my sins? Well, I want to tell you when Je what Jesus did for you is go to the cross. <laughs> Again, he, he did even more than what Moses could do. Moses was, was trying to intercede for just this group of people years ago. Jesus intercedes for everyone who puts their faith in him. That's what Jesus does. And what, is, what does he do? You confess your sins to him. You might be afraid of what, he, well, what he's going to do. Is he's going to forgive your sins. That's what he's going to do. And then he's going to, you might not even understand what this means, but if you do take these steps towards Jesus, you'll begin to experience what this means, that he'll cleanse you. He'll begin to cleanse you from all wickedness. He'll shine his light on every part of your life until there's no more darkness <laughs> in a way that only Jesus can do. Verse 10, if we, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. We have an intercessor. We have an intermediary. And he's even greater than Moses. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is truly righteous. And then it says, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. But not just our sins. I mean, this is where Jesus just goes way beyond. But for the sins of all the world. Everybody's welcomed into the kingdom. But you see, Moses, just a story that's unfolding, but it's beginning to give us categories and ways of thinking. How do we draw near to this God who wants to draw near to us? Well, something needs to happen. And the Bible talks about it as atonement. So let me give you an example, a way of maybe accessing this, if you haven't thought about this before. If you can picture the word atonement in your mind, you can almost just even break apart the word at-one-ment. <laughs> what is happening in, in atonement is we, we are one again. Something has happened that has ruptured or fractured our relationship, but through this atonement of our sins, of our failures, we are one again. We are reconciled. So it's kind of a silly illustration, but I heard it, and I think it's helpful. So imagine, imagine that you and I, we want to go to lunch together, which may, hopefully that's not hard for you to imagine. <laughs> but church ends, and we, we go to lunch together, and we go out, and we're, we're hanging out. We're having this great conversation, and we're listening, asking questions, learning about each other, encouraging one another, challenging each other, I mean, just really loving each other well. And it's time to, to go, and the... the you know, the waiter comes over, the waitress comes over and says, all right, it's time, it's time to pay your bill. And, and you, you see my face like I just go pale and do one of these like, oh my goodness, I forgot my wallet. And you look at me because you're a generous Christ-following person. You're like, I forgive you. And the, and the server's kind of like, what's going on here? It's time to pay. 
and you're trying to help me out. So you look up at the server and you say, you know what? My friend Jeff, he forgot his wallet, but it's okay. I forgive him. And the server's like, okay, that's not good, but I'm not going to mess. So the server goes against the chef or the manager and comes back, right? The manager chef comes back and says, okay, what's going on here? And like, oh, I don't want to embarrass my friend here, Jeff. He, he forgot his wallet. He can't pay, but it's okay. I forgive him. And the manager goes, I don't care if you forgive him. You owe me money. There's a debt to be paid and somebody's got to pay up. There's an actual cost here. Now, I'm guessing, again, you're this generous Christ-following person, and, and we're good friends. You would probably cover my cost, right? That's, but that's, that's one aspect of atonement. That's one of the things, as you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that's happening with atonement is there is a debt being paid, a cost is being covered. But there's another element, right? We talked about this cleansing, this purifying. Imagine that you and I, are, we, we enjoy hanging out so much that every Sunday we go out to lunch. But imagine this. Imagine every Sunday we go out to lunch and every Sunday, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I honestly, I'm not deceitful. I'm not scheming. I just, there's so much going on on Sunday morning. I keep forgetting to take my wallet. And so every Sunday we get to this moment and I don't have money to pay. Don't you imagine that at some point a few things are going to happen here that are going to dirty the air in our relationship, muddy the water? I mean, one possibility is you're just going to get really annoyed at me. Man, I really like Jeff, but it's just so annoying. It's so awkward every time. I mean, doesn't he know what he's doing? And you're going to start to maybe lose trust in me. You'll be less excited because you know the meal's going to end with this awkward moment where the manager's coming out. I don't care if you forgive him. Somebody owes me money. Or maybe, maybe, and, and we're going to transition this way because I actually think this is more the heart of God. You just love me. And you want to eat meals with me. You want to spend time with me. And you are worried about our relationship because you know that I'm starting to be embarrassed that I keep forgetting. And I'm starting to be afraid that you're going to think less of me. And so I start to pull away. I start to back out of the relationship. I, I don't know. I just, I can't do this lunch thing again. I keep forgetting. And so the other element of atonement, it, it covers the cost but it also cleanses, it purifies, it clears the air so that I know I don't have to be afraid of you. I know I messed up last week. I failed, but I can, I can come to lunch just as excited this week as I was last week, even though I failed last week, because you've cleared the air. You've brought the ultimate relationship detergent in, and you cleaned it. I'm not afraid of you, and we're happy to be together. You understand, that's a picture of what this God revealed to us in the scriptures and ultimately through Jesus is doing. <laughs> he's making atonement. He's covering the cost for our darkness, sin, evil, failure. But he's also clearing the air so that you and I can draw near to him. So that you don't have to be afraid, man, I messed up this week, but I can't go to church because God's really mad. You know what? There are consequences to our sin. Yes, we've talked about that in the series, but I want you to hear the heart of God. As he wants to cleanse the air. One of the things the blood of Jesus communicates is that God is doing everything he can to restore this relationship. So you and I come in humility and we confess our sins and we receive this gift that we don't deserve of forgiveness and life. I mean, we're in relationship with the God of life. You say, well, Jeff, that's a really positive way of looking at the atonement, but 
Is it really that positive? Is God really that eager? Is it really just all flowing out of his love? Are you sure he's not just really mad at me? I said, well, let's just see what John says. Just a couple chapters later, this is what John says. The other place he talks about atonement in this little letter. Chapter 4, verse 7, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. In the same way that life comes from God, love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for what? God is love. God is love. And how do we know? I mean, how do we know that God is love? Is it just like I heard a good song, and I just felt really excited while we were singing this morning. You know, I heard a good song on the radio. I just had these warm, fuzzy feelings. Is that how? No, no. This is how we know. We know that God is love because God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. Why did he do it? So we could see how bad we are? No, no so that we could have eternal life through him. Because we've been exiled from Eden and from the presence of God. And God is doing whatever he can to bring us home. What's the heart of God? Verse 10, this is real love. This is what John says. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's what I, God loves you. And he sent his son, it says, as a sacrifice to take away our sins. The Greek word is literally atoning sacrifice. <laughs> The atonement, this theological phrase, atonement of God reconciling us to himself, is, is just surrounded in the heart of God of love. He wants to pay the cost, cover the cost, cover your sin. He wants to clear the air so that we can be, because his heart is relationship. He wants you to know his life and know his love. That's the heart of God. Well, I could kind of stop there if I wanted, but I'm going to give you, like, just a couple minutes of bonus, because as I was even wrapping things up in Deuteronomy, I was like, you know, it's kind of cool. Moses, even though he looks a little upset about some things earlier in Deuteronomy, he ends really well, and the narrator is really celebrating him at the end. He's, he's strong, he's healthy, but he just does what God asks. There's no, there's no sense of complaint from Moses at the end here. He does what God asks, and then he's in the presence of God, and I think it's a picture of finishing well. And there's a few people, you know, we have a, we're actually blessed across you to have quite a diversity of generations here. And so I asked a few, a few of you who are 55 or better, I guess is how we say it. Um, there's there's two, two people in particular that are either later in life or, or some, some things have happened medically. Uh, one guy, I heard him say, I just want to finish well. I'm in my 80s. I just want to finish well. Another one is staring down cancer, and I just was listening to this person process. I want to, I want to endure the season of cancer in a way that gives glory to Jesus. And so I want to read. I got just uh, they wrote. They, I had them write up a little bit. They wrote up more, but I, I just a little snippet. But for those of you who are in those later 55 and, and better. Now listen to some of your fellow church family members. Maybe this will encourage you to keep going. You still have good work. You're here. You got good work to do. And for those of us who are maybe 55 and worse, I guess is what we would say, um, maybe this is, again, a, a good reminder of what is most important. Because in my role as a pastor, I often talk to people who are in those later seasons of life, and I, and I try to pay attention. What's important to these people in this season 
And are the things that I think are so important now really as important as I think they are? Because it seems like when you're 80, you don't care about this stuff anymore. And you care about a whole lot of other stuff that seems a whole lot better. So just, just two little mini testimonies from some people in our church family, and then we'll close in prayer and sing one more song. One person says this, going on 83 years old makes me realize that my days are numbered. They have always been numbered, but now that number has dwindled so much that I am aware that I must make them count. I want to finish strong in worship and praise, and most importantly, prayer. The more we earnestly pray and talk with Jesus, the closer we are to him and he to us. And I desperately need that closeness. I've been involved in church for a long time since I was an infant, but it doesn't mean I'm ready to stop now. Actually, it's quite the contrary. I feel called to never give up serving the Lord. And regardless of health or physical status, I will not, I cannot give up serving. I know my energies are insufficient to do all of this, all that I used to be able to do, but I do know from the scriptures that Jesus' grace and power is more, far more than sufficient for me. And I can tell you that by the end, when this all wraps up, I really want to be exhausted yet exhilarated and thrilled that my spirit will soon meet Jesus. Or another one of our friends, God in recent days has led me to think a lot about ending well. Although no one thinks this diagnosis is life-threatening, my diagnosis has allowed God to increase the intensity of my heart and mind in using my days to follow Jesus more closely and to recognize his presence toward the end of my journey. He's teaching me that his presence is way more important than the journey itself and that I need to spend my hours and moments recognizing his unfailing love and how he shows us this love in the events of every day. For me, it's kind of like a chain reaction. He, he reminds us of his unfailing love each morning. I begin to thank him and cultivate a heart of gratitude and it makes room for his presence and I recognize his spirit. And his presence brings peace and a calmness and a realization that the same love that was so freely given to me when he died for my sins is the same love that endures and even runs ahead of me in the events of my days. You could say on into eternal life. So take these as words of encouragement, maybe words of challenge. But let's be a church that lives wisely, that seeks out the presence of God. that runs to him because he runs to us, a church that finishes well. Let's pray. Uh, First, I want to begin just as we talk about this, this pathway you've created really for us, Jesus, through atonement. Uh, maybe for some of us, this will be the first time we do this, and maybe for some of us, this will be the, I don't know, four millionth time we do this, but it seems appropriate now as we're gathered here Uh, Jesus, we confess our sins to you. We throw ourselves upon your mercy at the foot of the cross. But whereas Moses wasn't sure how you'd respond, we know how you'll respond. And we don't want to take your gracious gift lightly. We don't want to turn it into something cheap. No, we want to respond with the gratitude of worship. We recognize we are not worthy for this gift, but we receive it from you. We confess our sins, and we ask you to cover our sins 
and then clear the air, filter the water so that our relationship can be rich, so that we can know you and see you for who you are. And Jesus, I also want to kind of cry out with Moses as Moses was in the cloud of, of fire, the, the cloud of your glory, and he He was able to think, man, there's more to you. Show me your glory. I want more. Jesus, we pray to you. Show us your glory. Your love is immeasurable. We want to know more of you. Show us your glory. Bless us with your presence. We humble ourselves before you and we say, come, Lord Jesus, and make your home with us. In your name we pray. Amen.